You wrote a Bible, I think it'd be a great time to take it out. And you follow as I read Psalm 34 in its entirety. It's rather long, but um, we're going to read the whole thing. Psalm 34, beginning at verse 1, we'll read through all 22 verses of it. Here we go. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The grass withers. And the flower fades. The word of our God. That endures forever. Guys, it's always helpful when you're studying the Psalms, when uh, the Psalm includes a an historical reference that gives you the historical setting out of which the Psalm grew. As you find is true in Psalm 34. There is a little annotation right above um, verse 1 that you might have noticed. And it tells you exactly what was going on in David's life when he wrote this psalm, Psalm 34. Um, the event is described for you in 1 Samuel 21. And I think we would probably be nincompoops if we didn't at least take a look, a brief look, at what was going on in David's life when he wrote Psalm 34. It's in 1 Samuel 21. And if you can find that real quick, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but let me just tell you. Um, the historical event that was unfolding when David wrote, or that prompted David to write Psalm 34. It's in 1 Samuel 21. As you know, <clears throat> Saul is the king of Israel. But the heir apparent is David. And Saul knows that. And so Saul hates David and wants to kill him. And so he chases him around the countryside, trying to find an occasion to kill David. David, of course, runs all over the country, fleeing from Paul, from Saul. On one occasion, he fled to the city of Gath. Gath is a little Philistine city 
Um, unfortunately, it happens to be the hometown of Goliath, which means that David wasn't exactly very popular in Gath. But while they're in Gath, he is captured by the Philistines. In his effort to um, extract himself from this particular situation, we are told in this setting, and let me warn you, this is not exactly David at his finest hour, we are told that while he's captured, he pretends to be insane. That's what verse 13 says. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the door of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. So what David does, because he's captured, is that he pretends to be insane and the spittle run, runs down his beard. And, and the, the, the king says, well, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't need another crazy man in my kingdom. I got plenty of those already. Let him go. So David is set free. But there's one other thing that you need to see in this little story that is pertinent to our uh, understanding of Psalm 34. He says in verse 12, and David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. You see it. David is much afraid. And upon being delivered from the king of Gath, he writes Psalm 34. Um, and he uses Psalm 34 as an occasion to teach the fear of the Lord. You'll see it over there in, actually in verse 7, really through the end of the Psalm, verse 7, verse 9, verse 11. David is teaching the fear of the Lord. But over here in 1 Samuel 21, David is not fearing the Lord. Oh, no, no, no. He's fearing a bunch of people who are about to um, capture him and want to kill him. Now, let me, let me just make three quick observations and we'll get to the psalm. First of all, guys, you've got to appreciate a book that tells you the ugly truth about all the heroes. And not only that, the God of this book is willing to use those flawed heroes... To teach things that are true about himself, about God. Even though those flawed heroes have not necessarily fleshed out those truths in their own lives. God uses them to, to speak truth. Secondly, guys, I hope you realize this, but all these heroes in here are flawed. Flawed. Um... Just because they don't live the truth doesn't mean that it's not the truth. But make no mistake about it, ladies and gentlemen. Even the best of the best in here are seriously flawed. And then thirdly, guys, none of these heroes, including David, were ever meant to be the standard. If you have been disillusioned by the failings that you've seen in Christian leaders, even either here or now, if it's if it's are you disgust, if you're disgusted with Christianity because of the failings of the leaders, that's your fault. Because you were never supposed to look to them as the standard anyway. There's only one standard. And as you know, his name is Jesus. And this Psalm, or Jesus is the fulfillment of of Psalm 34, which is something we'll see as we close. Okay, now let's get to the psalm. Psalm 2, Psalm 34. Gang, um, 
you remember that last week we started this little two-part series on fear. That the subject is fear. Um, th- this psalm, Psalm 34, breaks up basically into two halves. David is talking about a bad fear, and he's talking about a good fear. And we're going to look at both of those. We're going to look at a bad fear. That's my two points this morning, a bad fear and a good fear. And I'll try not to cover the same territory that we covered last week, and that's that's probably not going to happen. But, guys, you need to understand this about this book. This book seems to recognize that life is scary. And because the book knows, or because God knows that life is scary, this book often talks about fear. Talks about it much, folks. But the fear that we want to talk about this morning is vastly different than the fear that we talked about last Sunday morning. Okay? Let's take a look at the bad fear. Now, gang, what we saw in 1 Samuel 21 is that David is afraid, right? And what's he afraid of? It's not God that he's fearing. He's fearing people, men. He's afraid that these people will will capture him and kill him. He's afraid of that. Um, Now, gang, that's not a fear that we experience very often living here in Germantown. They, They do experience that fear in the church in Africa. Maybe not the church in Germantown, but the church in Africa is afraid of people who are capturing them and killing them. But but just because we don't have that fear doesn't mean that we're not afraid of people. Or we're afraid, all right. In fact, the book of Proverbs talks about the fear of man brings a snare. You remember that? It's uh, Proverbs 29 and 25, I think. The fear of man brings a snare. What's it talking about, the fear of man? Well, it's not talking about the fear that man will capture me and kill me. It's talking about something else. It's talking about a different brand of fear of people. And very frankly, it's the one that I see in us, in you, in me. It's the one that makes us change our behavior. It modifies how we dress. It influences how we talk. It even influences the kind of car we drive. Because the fear of man that brings a snare is the fear that people will reject me. And by the way, David mentions that one. He mentions it in Psalm 27, verse 10. He says, even if my mother or father reject me, the Lord will take me up. Gang, he is giving voice to one of the worst human nightmares conceivable. That the, that the people closest to me, the most foundational relationships in all of life, that those people might reject me. My, my parents, my friends, my spouse. And to make matters worse, most of us have had a pretty a pretty bad relational disaster, like a divorce or um, an ugly job firing or 
friends who've turned their back on me. And so what we do is because we've experienced such an enormous pain, we decide, well, that's never going to happen to me again. And so what we do is we develop our own personalized, our own privatized, individualized uh, strategy by which to cope with our fear. Our fear that people will reject me. And so what we end up doing is saying, okay, (laughs) I've tasted that enough. I've been through that, that pain before, and I don't ever want to experience that pain ever again. And so what we do is, is design a strategy to help us avoid ever having to taste that again. I'm going to try to illustrate that this morning. I've never done this. I've never done this. But I thought it was worth trying to illustrate with my famous, actually it's not mine, it's Larry Krabs, but um, the, the famous cliff of safety. Are you ready? Um, we're hoping this is going to work, but we're not sure. Here's what we do, guys. Oh, it's working. Here's what we do. Um, we experience a pain. We're going to make this a female. Um, so there she is. Um, and, and down here is the abyss. That's the thing that we don't want to ever taste again. The, the, the fear of rejection. We don't want that to happen to us again because it was terribly painful. And so what we do is that we, we, we design a strategy, a, a method, a, a self-protecting plan so that this will never happen to us again. We can't conceive of ever going through that again. And so what we do is we, we, um, we, we come to certain conclusions. We say, well, um, uh, no more risks. Uh, I'm not going to get close to anybody else. Uh, nobody's going to get, um, I'm not going to trust anyone. Now, God, um, has made certain promises to us. Promises like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But we're not trusting in those promises. No, no. These are promises right here, guys. We're not trusting in those promises. No, no. We're trusting in this strategy that we've got. So we wall ourselves in so that we don't have to taste this ever again. We don't want to taste that. No, no. And we wall ourselves in, and and it's pretty lonely in there, yes, but it's safe. And so, because we don't want to taste the agony of going through the kind of relational breakdown as we have in in the past, this is what we do. We establish ourselves in our own little method of coping. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's lonely, but it's safe. And so guys, if I'm ever going to heal and get beyond my fear of rejection, here's what I gotta do. I've gotta come to the place where I'm willing to trust that God's promises to me will hold me up in the face of my biggest fear. Um, promises like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Promises like, um, even if my mother or father desert me, the Lord will take me up. Um, it's Psalm 34, verse 8. That Blessed is the man who takes refuge in the Lord. 
But no, no, I'm not going to trust these. I'm going to stay up here. But if I'm ever going to be whole, if I'm ever going to be healthy again, it's going to mean that I'm going to have to swing out here and trust God's promises to hold me up in the fear, in the face of my great fear of being rejected again. No, that's easy for you to say, Jimmy. I mean, you've never gone through a divorce. I mean, you've never felt the sting of an unfaithful wife. No, I haven't. But I've tasted something almost that bad. I'm going to tell you about it. When I graduated from seminary in 1975, my first ministry was in Ocala, Florida. And you've heard me refer to Ocala, Florida more times than I ought to. But that was where I started my ministry in 1975 in Ocala, Florida. It was nine and a half of the best years of my life. We had all our kids there. Thought we were going to stay there the rest of our lives. Unfortunately, we stayed ten years. Because the last six months almost killed me. And my wife. Um, I wasn't fired. I wasn't asked to leave. In fact, the congregation showed up in my backyard one night begging me to stay. But I couldn't take it anymore. The, the problem was we were fighting. That is, me and the elders. That's all we did was fight. We would have, we would have meetings that started at 6 p.m. in the evening and they would end at, they would end at 2 a.m. in the morning. And the air in the room would be so thick you could cut it. And I couldn't take it anymore. I, 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 I lost my ability to sleep. I, um, I, I, I thought I was losing my mind. I wanted to die. I just, I just couldn't do this anymore. And so, my friend Jimmy Latimer called and offered me a job in Memphis, and I took it. And I came to Memphis, and I and I began, I began to get better. And then um, about two years into my stay here, Jimmy Latimer takes me out to and my Susie too out to supper one night and says, "Listen, um, when you get when you get ready, we want to go start a church, and we want you to do it." And <laughs> it was kind of funny because. You know, you think that my wife is this sweet, demure, um, retiring violet. She almost leapt out of her chair. She said, no, 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 we don't want to do that. And, and I agreed with her. We didn't want to do that. No, sir, Bobby, because I've got a, I've got a, I've got a self-protecting plan here. And here's my self-protecting plan. I'm never going to lead a church again. No, sir, Bobby. I'm never going to start a church again because even when you do, you open yourselves up to way too much pain. The possibility of this happening again to you. So, no, sir, I'm staying right up here. And I'm, I'm really not interested in your church planning venture. You go right ahead and have a good time, but I'm staying right here. About two years later, I was, we were laying in bed and I was reading a book. This one, it's not a very good book, but um, it opens with a, I mean, I wouldn't recommend reading, you're welcome to, but it, it, has a, uh, it has a story that it opens up with that was worth the price of the book for me. I want to tell you the story. Because I'm lying in bed, safely situated right here, right here, and um, convinced that the only way to protect myself from this ever happening again is to stay right there. I'm laying in bed and I'm reading this book and he opens with a story 
The author is Lloyd Ogilvy. Let me, he tells a story about his, I'm going to tell you that story because this was the story that I was reading in my bed that night. Uh, Ogilvy is a Scot. He pastors the church in Los Angeles, but he's a Scotsman and he was writing a book. Actually, he was writing this book. And so he went to Scotland to, and somebody had loaned him a cottage on the, on the sea, not, not, but not a bad gig. Um, but he was in the highlands of Scotland by himself writing this book. And so at the end of the day, uh, uh, late afternoon, he decided that he wanted a, a break. He wanted to go for a walk. And so it was raining outside, but he, he really didn't care about the rain. He thought it would be refreshing. And so he, he goes out there and, and these, these sheets of cold rain being driven by strong winds were, were just buffeting him as he walked. But he loved it. said he was singing in the rain, just having a ball. He was skipping from boulder to boulder, and, and on one occasion, he uh, was jumping from one boulder to the next, and his right leg slipped. Um, and he fell about 12 feet, went into a crevice um, where his left leg was lodged, and um, was knocked unconscious. Uh, when he came to, he realized he was in trouble. He had, first of all, he had ruined his leg. He, re- he, he didn't know how badly, but he knew he was in trouble with that leg. But he, he thought, if I stay here overnight, I'm going to die for exposure, cold. And so with excruciating effort, he lifted himself out of this crack and got on the top of the boulder. But he still had a mile and a half to go to get back to the, um, the main path so he could hopefully be found by someone who was taking the path. So he, he didn't know how to get there. He couldn't walk. So he laid on his back and he took his right leg in his arms and he pushed himself. For a mile and a half. He had to go over two fences. He said, when I got to the top of the fence and I had to just fling myself off and plop, there were just stabs of pain that would go through his body as a result of his uh, his leg. He went over two of those and then he had to push himself through a sheep pasture, which was filled with, guess what? And so he finally made it to the path and he began to pray, Lord, bring somebody down this path that will that will find me. Sure enough, a man and his two children, a teenage boy and a teenage girl were walking and they found him. He happened to be... Um, happened to be a cardiologist from Edinburgh. And he looked at Lloyd Ogilvy and he said, uh, you're in bad shape. We need to get you to a clinic. And they didn't have a car. So they went next door to a farmer, borrowed a car, um, stuck him in the car and took him to the clinic. When he got to the clinic, the clinic looked at him and said, uh, you're in trouble. We can't handle this. They called an ambulance, called the ambulance. The ambulance came and got him, took him to the hospital, took him to the hospital. The hospital said, uh, you're in big trouble. Uh, we can't help you here. What we need to do is get you stable and fly you back to LA and let them operate on you over there. That's what they did. Got him in an airplane, shipped him back to Los Angeles. And uh, there, his good friend, a a member of his church, an orthopedic surgeon, operated on his leg. Turned out that he had broken his tibia and its plateau in seven different places, had ruined his knee and the ligaments around it, and they had to reconstruct his, it was his left leg, his left leg uh, with pieces of his hip and a series of screws. Okay, I'm lying in bed and I'm reading all this. And I'm still very comfortable right here. And um, Lloyd Ogilvy goes to the doctor about three months after his surgery. And they, they do tests to see how the leg's coming. And, and they take some x-rays and do some tests. And the doctor goes out and reads the, the x-rays and comes back in. And he says, Lloyd, Lloyd, um, your leg is not healing. And... Um, It's not healing properly. And the reason that it's not healing, Lloyd, is because you're not putting any weight on it. And the reason, Lloyd, that you're not putting any weight on your leg is because you're afraid it's going to break again. 
Now listen to me, Lloyd. If you ever want that leg to heal, you're going to have to put weight on it. And Lloyd, we fixed it once. And if it breaks, we'll fix it again. And I'm lying in that bed, ladies and gentlemen, as if the Lord Jesus had said to me, Jimmy, I've healed you once. And I want you to move into the future unafraid. And Jimmy, if this happens to you again, I fixed you once. And I'll fix you again. And here I am. I'm the senior pastor of a church that I started 18 years ago. Because when you can finally come to the place where God's promises to you are more real than your pain, then you'll get over your greatest fear. I'm sorry you've gone through that divorce. I'm sorry that you had that horrible job loss. I I know it's painful. But if you're ever going to get whole, if you're ever going to love again, if there's ever going to be a taste of intimacy ever again for you, you're going to have to get off of here. And you're going to have to venture out into the deep where you find that the only thing that is holding you is the promises that God made to us. And that those promises are more real than what I'm feeling. Guys, our fear of rejection, our fear of people, is the product of raw unbelief. Now, the way you get over that is that you come out here and you find out, like David said, oh, taste and see. Oh, go ahead. Taste and see that the Lord God is good. You'll never taste that over here. Guys, that's the bad one. And I've told you how to get beyond it. If you aren't willing to to do this, then as the book of Proverbs said, the fear of men brings a snare. And you're going to live in it the rest of your life.
And you're going to fall into that snare, ladies and gentlemen, because you are unwilling. You are unwilling to take God at his word. Listen to him. I will never leave you nor forsake you even though your husband might. Even if my father or mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. I was broken once. You have been too. But he fixed us once. And he'll fix us again. Now, I want you to see that there's another fear in this psalm that's mentioned. It's, um, it's, it's all throughout the psalm. Uh, for instance, you find it in verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. David uses this occasion when he was delivered from all of his fears. That's what he says in verse 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. That was the fear of the king of Achish, that he is, um, or Achish, the king of Gath, that he is going to capture me and deliver me. He delivered me from those. As a result of that, David then sees, oh, the primary right, good, proper fear is not of the king of Gath. It's Yahweh. It's God that I'm supposed to fear. And notice, guys, a couple of things that he says. I just thought the angel of the Lord, verse 7, encamps around those who fear him. Verse 9, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. That is, the good life, the happy life, the, the enjoyable life, it's almost counterintuitive. How do I get that life? Well, I don't get it. By investing and expanding and buying more, and I get that life by a life that is the, characterized by a fear of God. And then he says in verse 11, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. All right, gather around, everybody. The thing that you most want is at your fingertips. Let me tell you what it looks like. Here's what it looks like. He says in verse 14, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Guys, generally speaking, the life of God-fearing is one that's characterized by people who hate sin. They don't run to it. They run away from it. They don't walk into temptation. They walk around it, away from it, get away from it. Because they know that the greatest enemy of their soul is not the economy. The greatest enemy of their soul is sin. The angel of the Lord encamps around. He promises his presence. He promises his guidance and his oversight. To who? To people who fear him. And those people, those are people who know... Sin will ruin them. And so the next time they sit down at their computer and they're about to hit a, 
an inner key that will take them to a site where they can gaze at the at the ugly. They run from it. They run from the computer. They run from the house. They do whatever they have to do. But people who fear the Lord turn away from evil and do good. They love good. They've come to love good. The other thing that he says, which is kind of a specific, and it's kind of interesting because it's, it's, it's what you call a brief lesson on the fear of the Lord. It's really only a couple of things that he mentions when he says, I'm going to teach you. Well, here's the first lesson. You know, they, they, they turn away from evil and love good. But the other thing that he mentions, kind of a specific, and it's an interesting one. He says uh, in verse 13, um, keep your tongue from evil. Now, why that? When he could have mentioned so much, he could have mentioned adultery or murder or something really bad, you know. But he mentions the tongue. One of the characteristics of a, of a God-fear is how they use their tongue. You know, guys, um, there's a lot in here about the tongue. You know that. Read the book of Proverbs. It's, I mean, it's just everywhere in there. And, and I think the reason that that's what David mentions is because it's not so much that he's concerned about tongue sins. But David knows that the tongue is nothing more than a gateway, a, a window to the, to the heart. What comes out of the mouth is just living on the heart. You got a trashy mouth? You got a trashy heart. You got a trashy heart? You got a trashy mouth? Because you got a trashy heart. You parents, you have gone to your child's MySpace and you find them using language that just shocks you. They, they drop the F-bomb. Well, I'm sorry they use that too. It's not pretty. But mom and dad, you better be concerned a whole lot more about their heart than their tongue. Because what comes out of that mouth is just a reflection of what's in that heart. God fears. People who walk in the fear of God are people whose speech is changing. It's getting better. We don't use that language like we used to. I know all those words, ladies and gentlemen. I use them. And I, mine were always worse because I was loudest. People could hear mine. I know them. Now, i got to quit. But I told you at the beginning, I don't know if you remember this, but I told you that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Psalm 34. Let me tell you what I, or let me, let me just try to describe what I mean. In terms of the bad fear, that fear of rejection, that fear of man, in terms of the bad fear, no one, no one has experienced the pain of rejection by people like Jesus Christ has. His own family thought he was crazy. His own family showed up at one of his teaching occasions and wanted to get him because they thought his elevator didn't go all the way to the top. Our brother, my son, is nuts. We got to go get him. The 12 disciples, they ran when he was arrested. One of them betrayed him. The other one denied him. 
no one endured such, in terms of a job law, no one endured such a wholesale expulsion by the so-called authorities. The Sanhedrin, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they all rejected him. The New Testament said that he came to his own and his own received him not. But ladies and gentlemen, all of that was nothing, nothing compared to the fact that his own father rejected him. He said it. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In terms of the good fear, no one feared the Lord like Jesus Christ. No one spoke like he spoke. No one loved good like he loved it. No one hated evil like he hated it. He's the consummate God-fearer. And here's the point, folks. All of that was done for you. He was despised and rejected so that I could be loved and accepted. He was, he was cast out, out of the Father's presence so that I could be taken into the Father's presence. He went into the eternal abyss so that I could escape it. He lived as a God-fearer so that God would have a perfect payment for all of us who failed in our God-fearing. What a Savior. What a beauty. What a glorious gospel. What a glorious provision for sinners. Christ and Him crucified. He's the one who delivered me from all my fears. Father, I pray that you will exalt the Lord Jesus in our midst this morning. Might he be seen in all of his beauty. Might the heart lay hold of the beauty of the gospel. A gospel which elevates the Lord Jesus and says to sinful men, lay hold of him. So, Father, you have said, seek your face, and it's your face that we will seek. We don't want more of the rules. We want more of the beauty. We want more of, we want our hearts to be captivated by the excellence of Christ Jesus. Might he be seen through eyes of faith in all of his saving beauty. Rapture, enrapture our hearts, O oh God, so that our, our lives might reflect that we have fallen in love with the beautiful Savior. We make our prayer, of course, in Jesus' name.